Hey, good morning, friends, and happy Sunday to you. Today we're going to be in Romans chapter 11, verse 1 and 2, and then the verses at the very end of the chapter. So if you'd like to open up your Bibles and join me there, I would be honored. We're going to talk today about the faithfulness of God. Over the last couple of weeks, we've been in Romans 9 through 11, and we haven't been reading every verse together, but we've been trying to hit the highlights of Paul's reasoning that he's moving towards something pastorally for the Jews and the, and the Greeks in Rome, these Roman Christians and Jewish Christians who aren't seeing eye to eye. In fact, it seems like things are very bad. They're not getting along at all. And so a couple of weeks ago, from Romans chapter 9, we talked about Paul's attitude towards the people that reject Jesus. And even though he can say, and actually this verse is in chapter 11, that they're enemies of yours on the account of the gospel, that they're still loved by God. And this is his attitude that he shows in Romans chapter 9, is that he loves the people who are even on the other side of the issue than he is. And then last week in Romans chapter 10, we saw the transforming foundation of grace, that God has not made it hard for us to come to him. In fact, the scripture that Paul refers to says it's not like you have to go up to heaven or across the sea or down into the pit of the grave in order to find Christ or earn him. No, it's on your lips and in your heart to confess Jesus as Lord and to believe in him in your heart. And so what we have from Paul here is an attitude towards others of love and a foundation of our own salvation that comes from grace, not from anything we've earned. And today we're going to see the linchpin in this little argument of Paul's that will help the Jews and the Roman Christians to accept each other. And the linchpin is the faithfulness of God. Now let me read Romans chapter 11 verse 1 for us. Paul says, I ask then, did God reject his people? By no means. It's one of the strongest phrases Paul uses in scripture to say no. By no means God did not reject his people. I am an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Paul says, no way, God did not reject his people. Why would he even have to ask this? Because at the end of Romans chapter 10, Paul says, in spite of grace, the Jewish people have largely rejected their Messiah. He brushed right by them. I mean, he touched some of their hands and he healed some of them, their vision and, and their bleeding and their, their legs that didn't work anymore. Now they could leap and run. He healed them of their skin diseases. He moved among them, but as a people, they rejected him. Why? What happened? What went wrong? How could this be? How could the people of God, who have been waiting for the, uh, for the reconciliation of God and the redemption of God, miss the salvation of God when it comes to them like this? Maybe, the Roman Christians might say, maybe God has given up on them. Maybe they're out and we're in. Maybe we're the new people of God and he doesn't love them anymore. Paul says, no, it's not God's rejection of them. Now, that kind of canceling is our human nature, not God's nature. And all it takes for us to see this is to look around our own world for a minute. I mean, we cancel everything. We subscribe to TV shows and channels and streaming services and get credit cards and order stuff from Amazon and then send it all back and cancel everything. I mean, pretty literally, anything we want to return, 
If you complain to the manager long enough, you can probably return. And some of us have done that. They'll bring food that's not exactly perfect to our table and we send it back. I mean, man, we have this way of going about our world when it comes to stuff and subscriptions and even relationships with friends sometimes, with significant others, with spouses, where it doesn't take that much for us to write them off, reject, and cancel them. And this is what Israel did, in a sense, to Jesus, is they missed the boat. This is what the Jews and the Gentiles in Rome are doing to each other. They're writing each other off, canceling each other. They're missing the boat here on the opportunity for unity and love in the church because they're writing each other off. And we, in our culture today, we cancel everyone. Someone votes the wrong way, they're canceled. Someone has made a mistake in their past by saying something dumb, and now they're canceled. You know, every comedian, every athlete, every celebrity is starting to learn that all it takes is your worst moment from the past getting put on Twitter today for you to get canceled. I mean, it happens to almost everyone because everyone does dumb stuff. You know, that's Paul's whole point in Romans 3, right? Everyone sins and falls short of the glory of God. Well, when as a culture, you have to live up to a perfect idea of always being correct, everyone will fall short of that. You see, we people, we fall short of our own standards all the time. So even when we make rules for ourselves, we can't live up to them. We can't meet them. That's actually Paul's point in Romans 1 and 2, by the way. And so here we are as a people who cancel everything, cancel everyone, write people off. And those of us that grew up just long enough before YouTube and Twitter and Facebook became real big are so glad that everything we said early in our life and everything we did isn't recorded for the whole world to scrutinize. Because the truth is we all make mistakes. We are human. And why do people do this? Why do people cancel others, reject others in the first place because it's a path to superiority. It is a way of saying, if they're out, then I'm in, or at least I'm closer to in. If they're not approved and I am the one who reveals it, then I'm closer to being approved. There's even this term now for when people call others out on social media about issues that they probably really don't care a lot about in, in their own life, they haven't done much about, they just get to be the first one to call the other person out, it's called grandstanding. Whenever somebody wants to take a moral high ground and put other people into the cancel culture. You know, this is just the way that we work. We need different examples. And the greatest example is the faithfulness of Jesus and the faithfulness of our Father in heaven. But let me give you a fun literary example. Uh, in one of the greatest pieces of literature uh, ever, the Lord of the Rings trilogy, in the first book, The Fellowship of the Ring, we meet these hobbits from the Shire. And famous for his loyalty is Sam Gamgee. Sam Wise Gamgee is the friend of Frodo and the other hobbits who is so loyal he goes along with Frodo on this mission with the ring from the Shire all the way to Mordor. He's there at the very end after everyone has given in to the lure of the ring. It's Sam who stands with Frodo once it's destroyed. It's Sam who's been with him all of the way. But one of the most touching moments in the first book about Sam's loyalty shows up at the great council 
So there's elves and there's dwarves and there's wizards and there's hobbits and there's humans that have all come together to decide what to do with this ring and how to destroy it. And nobody wants the responsibility of carrying the ring to Mordor because one simply does not simply walk into Mordor, right? The famous Boromir line. Okay, so nobody wants the responsibility, but Frodo says, I'll take it. I will take the ring, though I don't know the way. Elrond, the great elf, looks at him and gives this great speech about how no one can give you this responsibility, but if you take it, you'll be considered uh, among the greatest of all of the elves of all time, even though you're a hobbit, and so on. He, gives, he gives this impassioned speech like, you know, go for you. And then, from the corner, a voice pipes up. But you won't send him off alone, surely, master, cried Sam unable to contain himself any longer and jumping up from the corner where he'd been quietly sitting on the floor. No, no indeed, said Elrond, turning towards him with a smile. You, at least, shall go with him. It is hardly possible to separate you from him, even when he is summoned to a secret council, and you are not. Gotta love that line. It is hardly possible to separate you from him even when he's summoned to a secret council, and you are not. Sam is loyal, even in the face of adversity, an impossible task. He doesn't give up. And we're facing so many things that seem hard in our world. You know, we're facing all of these events of 2020 and the questions of school and whether to go back or to stay at home. And in so many ways, we're in these impossible situations where people make choices different than us. It would be very easy to cancel them, to write them off. And in fact, we see folks doing that all the time. This is what the Romans were doing to the Jews. This is what we do to each other, and we need help. So where do we turn? We look at the greatest and most faithful one of all time, the Father who has plans that he does not give up on, whose gifts and whose call are irrevocable, as Paul will say later in Romans 11. God does not give up on his people. And Paul begins to make this point in verse 1 and 2 by simply giving one example. All Paul needs is one example to break a stereotype. Most of the time when we categorically reject people because of what team they're on or how they've voted or, or something that they've purchased, when we categorically reject people, our minds are set. We've made presumptions and assumptions about them. But Paul shows that it just takes one example to break a stereotype. So he offers himself first. He says, has God rejected his people? By no means. I am an Israelite. Paul says it as plainly as you can. If I can come to accept Jesus, and I was a persecutor of the church, by the way, you know, like Paul in other places describes how very, very against Christ he was. If Paul can become a follower of Jesus, any Jew can. He breaks the stereotype. And then he gives a second example, and a powerful one, from the Old Testament scriptures. Elijah the prophet, who famously went up on Mount Carmel and defeated the priests of Baal. He called down fire from heaven. He burned up the offering. And then he ran faster than the chariots back into town. He was infused with the power of God. Talk about somebody who is on top of his prophetic game. And then what does he do? Wanders off into the wilderness and has a good depression. I mean, he gets a good sulk on. And God comes to him and feeds him and lets him take a nap in the beginning of 1 Kings 19. And he continues on to a cave where his sulk continues. 
He's having a good wine, a couple glasses of it, right? Needs some cheese to go with that wine. Here he is in the cave, and God comes to him. The Lord speaks to him and says, What are you doing here, Elijah? He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. You know, I've tried hard. I've worked hard for you, God. The Israelites, they've rejected your covenant. You see how the prophet of Israel categorically rejects all the Israelites. He puts them all into a stereotype. They've rejected you, and I have not. They've broken down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with a sword. He even gets very specific. I am the only one left, he said. And now they're trying to kill me too. So God gives Elijah an experience. First a wind comes that shatters mountains, and then an earthquake that shakes the world, and then fire that consumes everything in its path. And yet God is not present in any one of those. And we typically tell this part of the story because of what comes next. There is the sound of pure silence, or maybe you could translate it a, a small, still voice. But it's as if nothing at all. And there's the presence of God in it. And then the word of the Lord speaks to Elijah again. The same question. And this is the part of the story that we don't often tell. Elijah, what are you doing here? And he replied with the same words. I mean, right down to the letter that he said the first time. He has a good wine and he has it again. He says, I've been zealous for you. Israel's rejected your covenant, broken down your altars, put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they're trying to kill me too. He's like, didn't you hear me the first time? This show you did of your power didn't fix the situation. You know, I'm the only one left. And he's writing off everybody else. And then God says to him, I want you to do this. I've got two kings for you to go anoint. I've got one prophet for you to go anoint. And by the way, I have reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed down to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. Elijah, what? But I thought that it was down to just you and me. God says, you don't know the whole story yet. You don't know what I am about. I've not rejected my people. I've got some who are ready. They're pure. They're ready to serve. They're ready to, to do what is right. We're going to rebuild this thing. But all it takes, really, for Paul in Romans 11 is one example. He offers another one to break down the stereotypes, to say, don't you know that if there's a remnant at all, if any Jew believes in Jesus, then God is not done with them. Stop canceling everybody. Stop writing them off. There is still hope. All it takes is one to break a stereotype. Now let's take from this uh, truth, that God is faithful. God does not reject his people. And let's take an insight and a point before we're done today. One insight and one point. The insight is this. In fact, when it seems like God's people are shrinking, to Elijah, it looks like it's down to one. To Paul, he can see that many Israelites have rejected Jesus. When it seems like God's people are shrinking, God uses that rejection of himself to expand his people and welcome more in. This is one of the great mysteries of God, that his faithfulness is so powerful and pervasive that what it seems like his people are shrinking, his people are actually growing. You know, an example of this right now is that you'll often hear Americans saying 
that there's less and less people that go to church and less and less people that are committed Christians. And there's some evidence in our country to say that maybe that's true here, but it is not true overall. The fact is that the church is growing and it's growing in multiples. In South America, there are more people becoming Christians year after year than there were converting to like Protestant Christianity in Europe in the Reformation. There are people becoming Christians in Africa and underground churches in China and throughout Asia. The world is filling up with the love of Jesus, even while we sit at home and sometimes twiddle our thumbs and go, woe is us, the church is falling apart. You know, God isn't done. So let's not write people off. And by the way, that might transform the way we Christians talk about Asians and Latin Americans. Think about what God is doing for the kingdom through them. Maybe as American Christians, that will give us resources to talk differently and to think differently about these brothers and sisters from other nations and their fellow citizens. You know, in times that look like losses, God makes gains. And not only that, but he uses the limiting situations to expand his reach. There's actually a mystery here in which by putting what seems like a limit on his people, he actually provides a channel for all people to come into his grace. Paul explains it this way in Romans chapter 11. That because Israel rejected their Messiah, the Gentiles were welcomed in. But because the Gentiles are welcomed in, the Jews can become jealous that they're experiencing the love of God and his promises, and they can actually be grafted back in too. Paul uses this image of an olive tree to say, if you can graft branches in, then you can put the branches that were trimmed off back on too. And by the end, the, the tree will be fuller and thicker of all the people of God than it ever was at the beginning. God uses limiting situations to expand his people. This is a powerful insight for us because there's so many times we look around in our world and we say, woe is us, woe is the church, everything's falling apart, people don't love God the way that they used to, they're not as dedicated as they used to, they don't come to church as many times as they used to. Well, think about this church. If for years we've been wondering why people wouldn't come to the building as often, maybe God was preparing us for a pandemic when we wouldn't have buildings to come to. Now he's got people who, by the way, still love him and have learned how to use resources for home Bible study and small groups. And we thought that was just a growth method. Maybe God has been preparing us for a church expansion method. We're now in neighborhoods and in homes all around Northwest Arkansas. We have people that know with confidence how to lead a Bible study, how to do communion together, how to baptize their siblings or their friends in a body of water that's right outside their door or across the, the walkway. They've, they've got people now in all of these neighborhoods who on Sunday mornings are worshiping Jesus from the neighborhood instead of congregating at a church. Maybe... God is doing something amazing through this. And we just need to see with his sight. Has God rejected his people? No, by no means. How could that be? You know, sometimes we see this in life in poignant and touching ways. I think about the movie, It's a Beautiful Life, where George Bailey has limiting factors that come into his life. He wants to go see the world. He wants to go off to university. He has dreams, you know. And things happen. He has to stay at home, help out, you know, guard the fort, take care of the people. And it seems like his life has been put in a chokehold. 
He's even experiencing depression. He's ready to give up. What he can't see because of the, of the limiting effect of his disappointment is that his life is reaching more people deeply than ever would have been possible through traveling the world. That he's making a deep impression on people that he's known all his life. Helping people that wouldn't have a chance for good housing to get it. Cheering people up when they're uh, upset and hurt by this very greedy person who's going to try to take advantage of them all. George, by staying and being limited, actually expands his reach so powerfully. But it's hard to see it. I've heard of some stories like this that are in real life. A man named Gene, whose relatives I know, who was brilliant, had so much potential, in fact, had opportunities to go international to do scientific research and development, had opportunities to work at, at great R&D facilities, and uh, was just a very smart person who came back home to work the family farm because that's what the family needed. And over the rest of his years, he invested deeply in that community, so much so that as a, uh, an accountant, he did the taxes for people all through this small town, and they maybe didn't know this about him, but he would often undercharge for his work because he didn't want to stretch people. But he would never undercharge so much that it would undermine the dignity of that person. He'd make sure to charge them something so that they had some human dignity. And boy, was he loved. And I didn't get to spend time around him, but I've got to spend time around uh, one of his kids and some of his grandkids and to see the, the legacy and the impact that a person makes even when their dreams are limited by investing deeply in their community. This is what Paul wants these Jewish and Roman Christians to do. So you think that you've been limited in some way or you think that these people have been rejected by God and that puts you on a high seat of... No, invest here in your people. Remember that God is faithful and be faithful to each other. The insight here is that when God seems to be saying no to some dreams, he's probably opening bigger doors. The Holy Spirit said no to Paul to go to Ephesus and to go on other directions that he thought would be effective for his ministry and send him to Philippi instead. How disappointing for Paul. He gets sent to Philippi, the church that becomes his sponsoring church, his dearest friends, the letter of joy that he writes to the Philippians from prison when they send their gifts to him. You know, it was a limiting moment when the Holy Spirit said no because God wanted to expand his reach and turn it into growth. Now here's the final point. Where does all of this lead us to today? Is that God does not give up on his people. And if we're being formed like his son, then we won't give up on each other either. We won't give up on the people who are even outside the kingdom of God. We won't write them off. We won't cancel them. We'll continue to seek their good, the good of our city. The good of people that disagree with us will take the time to listen to them and show mercy to them because these are the three truths of this series that we've been in is that Paul looks at the people who ought to be his enemies and says, but they're loved anyways. And then Paul says, don't you know, Romans chapter 10, that all we have is a foundation of grace, is a gift of grace. The words on our lips, Jesus is Lord. The faith in our heart. We can't earn this. And then he says, you know, God's the faithful one. He never gives up on his people. In fact, this is the way Paul puts it at the end of Romans 11. He says, God's gifts 
and his call are irrevocable. So when God made promises to the nation of Israel, God was not going to reject his people. He was not going to cancel his promises. He must do something for them. And Paul says this, Just as you, the Gentiles, at one time you were disobedient to God. In other words, you were outside. You've now received mercy as a result of their disobedience. So they too now have become disobedient in order that they may receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. Paul's point is just this. Every move that God makes is towards mercy. Every move that he makes. Whether it's them stepping out and being unfaithful to the covenant, that's so you get mercy. You get mercy so they'll see it and be aroused to jealousy and they'll get mercy. And if what brought death to them brings life to you, how much more will their restoration bring? You know, abundant life. And so Paul concludes, God therefore has bound all men over to disobedience that he might have mercy on them all. This is truly a deep mystery of our faith. That God has allowed rejection of himself to occur so that he could show mercy to people. That God has allowed limiting factors to come so that he could expand the reach of the kingdom and help his people to put in deep roots. These three little truths, the love of enemies and the grace foundation and the faithfulness of God, what these point towards and lead to is transformation. That when we understand Romans 9, 10, and 11 in this way, we'll never be the same. This is why in chapter 12, in the first few verses, Paul will say, Be transformed then by renewing your mind. And he will start to describe so many beautiful gifts that the church can offer to each other and to the world around. When we realize that even the people that seem to have rejected God might just be the next ones in line for him to restore. They're that close. God does not give up on his promises. He is faithful. Let's pray one more time the prayer of Paul at the end of chapter 11, who caught up, even in his own letter, in this majestic and powerful love of God, has to just erupt into praise. He says, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. His paths are beyond tracing out. Who's known the mind of the Lord? Who's been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay him? For from him and through him, and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And the church says, Amen.